I'm Brian Lowry, a professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and this is Leadership for Society, a series of conversations that focuses on the most pressing issues of today. This fall, we're talking about race and power. How can we even start to have a conversation when like some people aren't acknowledging that this is a problem in the political sphere? I think the student who made that point was right. When you think about it, we hear surprisingly little about race and racism from most politicians. We really wanted to hear from major politicians, not only about their attitudes towards race, but also about their personal experience of race. And we had the good fortune of having two politicians across the aisle from each other agree to come and talk with us. Former Republican Senator from Arizona, Jeff Flake, and former Democratic Governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick. Before the conversation, I met with some students to get their perspective on politicians and the issues of race and racism in America. There's entirely different kind of starting points or, or, or tenors, I think, in each party around uh, the topic of racism. I mean, we just get like vastly different messages. It's not every day that people get to like hear from famous politicians talking about racism and race. Wait, it's kind of crazy, right? They said yes. I know. Like, I, that's why I think there's kind of like a, there's something liberating in that. It's important to know that this conversation was recorded eight days before the 2020 presidential election. Welcome to the Leadership for Society Race and Power conversation series. I'm really excited to have two distinguished guests today, Senator Jeff Flake. And Senator Flake has served as the Arizona U.S. Senator from 2013 to 2019, and before that in the House of Representatives for Arizona from 2001 into 2013. And Governor Deval Patrick was the governor of Massachusetts from 2007 to 2015, and he was a candidate in the Democratic primaries for the 2020 presidential election. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So first... Um, race and racism is really at the forefront of people's minds right now. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement is, by many accounts, one of the largest movements um, in American history in terms of people who are participating in, in um, demonstrations and otherwise. And right now, it's really tough to talk frankly and openly about race. And I would say it has been for some time in, in America. Um, there are people who are um, again, on the streets protesting, and there are people who think the problem is maybe just a few bad apples if there's a problem at all. Um, and as public servants and politicians that serve broad constituents, it must be really tough to talk about race given the division in the country. So first, I, I want to thank you again, because I, I think it takes courage to talk about this in the way that um, we're, gonna, we're going to do here. How has um, race affected your experience personally, as a, um, someone in Washington, as a politician, how what role has race played in your experience? Well, I grew up in a very sheltered uh, white environment, if you will, in a small town in northern Arizona. Um, so I, I had a lot to learn. I uh, later uh, went to South Africa for a couple of years in Zimbabwe um, and saw, you know, as, as an American living abroad uh, during the Cold War, uh, in the 1980s, when you know we made all kinds of trade-offs with regard to foreign policy, 
uh, trying to woo African countries in our orbit and out of the Soviets, Soviet Union's orbit. But to see, uh, to be in South Africa when apartheid was uh, in full force, and uh, to be in Zimbabwe where they'd just gone through the independence process. And then later, I was in Namibia for a year, the year that Namibia got its independence from South Africa, uh, when Nelson Mandela was released. Uh, and, and to be able to see Africa uh, at different periods there and then come uh, home and back to Arizona and then eventually to Congress and uh, and see that where we think that our country is far advanced from some of these other countries who are going through things more recently, the more we, we dig into it, we find out... Uh, we have a long way to go. So, yeah, it's it's been a real education for me. Great. And Governor Patrick, your experience as a Black man affected your experience as a politician. Well, it, I mean, you, it's impossible to separate them, right? I've only served in one elected office, and I, I ran, the first thing I ever ran for was governor. And I live in a state and was running in a state where the population here, the Black population is about 5% on a good day. So it wasn't that I had a, a base, as they say, I could, I could claim that would propel me um, forward. Um, and I think there was a supposition uh, that, first of all, it'd be hard to run anyway as a, as a newcomer and as an outsider, kind of cutting the line that way. But trying to do it as a as a black man was just unheard of. It's interesting that the that the conversation never stopped with, you know, you just can't cut the line like that. It was always, you can't cut the line like that. And it's highly unlikely. It's even more unlikely because you're black. But I think um, once we won, I, I think the expectations of me were different. And I'll just give you one example. The uh I remember there was a there was a shooting in Roxbury uh that uh, predominantly black neighborhood in Boston, and it was tragic as these things always are. It was of a of a uh, of a boy, I think eleven years old at the time, and the neighborhood was in an in an uproar. And the mom said to a television ca- camera, "You know, where is Governor Patrick?" Of course, the media seized on that. Normally, these things are matters for the mayor, or the local uh, uh, local uh, government, and I I had this foolish amateur resistance, not because I didn't feel her heartbreak, but because it just seemed like that was not what a governor was supposed to do. Um, She and I and the family are very, uh, very close today, but I would tell you being called out like that and having it sort of amplified by the media who were basically, who would never have asked my predecessor or my successor, were not black. Why didn't you show up at the scene of a local shooting? I had to just get over that um, uh, and embrace that part uh, of the job, whether it was in an additional dimension for me as a black man uh, or not. I think in the end, I gained more than I lost. I think, frankly, having that intimacy with with the people I I served was important to me. Um, And there are a variety of other ways in which... um, I, uh, I own that and I learned from it and I manifested that uh, going forward. I think it actually made me better at the job. So I, I want to turn to um, what's going on right now in politics. So obviously we're deep, deep in the presidential um, election. And in terms of race, there's been a lot discussed in, in terms of um, Donald Trump's unwillingness, at least in the certainly in the first debate, to disavow white supremacy or white supremacist organizations. And I'm... Um, and even though he 
refused to do that, or at least was reluctant to do that, he still maintained the support of the Republican Party and most of the most of the base. And so I'm curious, Senator Flake, what do you make of that? Like what what should someone like me or black folks or other people of color in this in this country make of the fact not so much make of Donald Trump per se or as President Trump, but rather that um, he was reluctant or at least slow to do that and still maintained um, quite a bit of support. Well, it, 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 it baffles me and it pains me uh, to see what my, my party has countenanced uh, you know, from this man. Uh, f- for me, uh, you know, way back in, what was it, 2011, 2012, when he uh, you know, latched onto the birtherism uh, thing, that was enough for me right there. <laughs> I thought uh, anybody who believes this ought to be disqualified, but uh, uh, the only thing worse than that is not believing it, but knowing that some of your supporters did and using it uh, as, a, as a means to gain support. And so I think that's where the president has always been. And that's why I couldn't support him in the first election and couldn't in the, this one either. But it is, it's painful, uh, let me tell you, not just in this area, but in so many areas uh, to see my party embrace it with open arms in some cases. Now, some are more standoffish and some you know, claim that they wish he would uh, speak otherwise, um, but painful to, to watch this. And how do you think we got here? Right. How do you think we came to this place or the Republican Party ended up in this place? Well, I mean, there's always been, you know, John Meacham, historian, uh, you know, was saying a while ago that, uh, you know, this element has always been part of the Republican Party. But gratefully, it was a smaller segment. Uh, now he fears that it may be, you know, upwards <laughs> higher than we, we all want to admit. I don't know about that, but we what we've always had is is leaders willing to put country over party here. Just one example, uh, when David Duke got the Republican nomination for governor in uh, Louisiana, this was 1992, uh, George H.W. Bush, you know, condemned him, uh, you know, endorsed the Democrat who, you know, who didn't have a, a rosy record. He'd been indicted, I think, on some charges, but there were even bumper stickers going around saying, vote for the crook. It's important. <laughs> but uh, they, they understood that, uh, you know, this couldn't, the, the Republican Party couldn't be associated with such a man. Several Republican senators actually traveled down to Louisiana to campaign for the Democrat because they knew that, uh, you know, it was dangerous to have the party associated uh, with that kind of overt racism. Um, but we've, you know, we've slipped. And I've wondered, uh, you know, why more of my colleagues haven't condemned this. Uh, now, many did. Many came out when he made his comments in Charlottesville. And some have even said the same when he f- refuses to condemn the Proud Boys and others. I mean, these ought to be layups. I mean, it ought to be so easy. But he seems so unwilling to offend a portion of his base. And I guess that says ugly things about a portion of the Republican base right now. But uh, we need to get beyond it if we're going to be a relevant party in the future. And that was my next question. What does it take to turn it around? So I'll tell you my fear. President Trump has demonstrated that you can at least ignore norms, um, that it's possible to be somewhat successful politically with at least the behaviors he's engaged in. 
And if there were maybe a little bit more discipline in the message, that it's not clear that this wouldn't this wouldn't be a successful strategy. And so I, I wonder and I worry if that is the lesson that the Republican Party might be learning from this. And so I'm curious where I, I know I know you've spoken out against it. So I'm curious what you think it's going to take to shift the Republican Party. Well, <laughs> rejection at the polls. Nothing focuses the mind like a big election loss. And but I should mention, uh, you know, we went through this in 2012. Um, after the Mitt Romney loss, we all concluded with the autopsy we performed that, uh, you know, we needed to appeal to a broader electorate. And, uh, you know, two months later, we chased a populist. I hope that it that actually turns us away and that nobody, I mean, I guess if there's good news here, it's it's those at the state, different state levels who try to be like the president uh, don't get very far. I mean, if you're in Arizona and you're trying to be a Trump acolyte running statewide, you're going to lose. Um, if you're a Republican running for mine inspector and nobody pays attention to you, you can still win. So I, I hope that that, uh, you know, tells people that there's no there there and maybe Trump could get away with it. But the rest of us can't and shouldn't. Uh, so I, I hope that that's what happens. But uh, time will tell. That um, makes me think about the Democratic side on this, because the Democratic Party but basically since Lyndon Johnson has not in the presidential election won the white vote over the last you know many decades now the democratic party has bled the white vote at the presidential level so governor patrick obviously that that doesn't um not at the state level necessarily say, be careful how far you take that <laughs> at the state level but certainly at the presidential level um there's there's a clear fracturing along racial lines um in terms of party affiliation and the way people vote. What, what should the Democrats do to turn that around? So let me make a couple points, um, Brian. First of all, I'm a proud Democrat. I'm not the sort of Democrat who thinks you have to hate Republicans to be a good Democrat. Um, but Democrats get on my last nerve. You know, we I, I don't know how many candidates I meet or events I go to where folks are talking a lot about how they're going to win, you know, what how they're going to put the coalition together, what they're going to say over here. And what they're going to say over there so that the folks over here aren't offended um, instead of why. You know, what makes us a Democrat? What are we about? And that we um, should be talking to everybody, the people who agree with us, the folks who don't, the folks who always vote Democratic, the folks who never do, and all the ones in between. Because I think it is true um, nationally, what I saw here in Massachusetts and what I have seen working with other candidates around the country in, uh, in other races, one is that most people feel unseen and unheard by their government. Most people do. And I'm saying this as someone who um, believes what I think most people do, which is that they're not looking for government to solve every problem in their life. They just want government to do its part to help them help themselves. And secondly, I think that um, one of the reasons why it is so easy to divide us, whether it is politically or in other ways, is because we don't know each other anymore in this country. It's one of the reasons why I'm really, really committed to seeing uh, national service exposed. We don't have much more than the cartoon version we get of, uh, of each other. And it's not until you spend time with people who are different from you and have different perspectives than, um, than you do that you start to pierce through. So if you sit in, you know, in Massachusetts, for that matter, 
you think your vote doesn't count because the only people anybody's talking about live in the so-called battleground states. If you sit in Utah, tell me if I'm wrong, Senator Flake. You don't think you matter um, in uh, in a national uh, election because the only folks people are talking about and the only ones they go to talk to are someplace else than where you are. And we have got to figure out how to make our politics, um, and I say this as a Democrat, but mainly as a patriot, we have got to make our politics more proximate at every level of, uh, of government. And I think Democrats have let the science and analysis of winning elections overtake the importance of making people feel seen and heard. Mm-hmm. So, all right, I, I'm, I want to hear your pitch. I'm a Trump voter, right? I live in, I don't know, a battleground state or I, I live in Utah. What's your pitch to me, right? So I, I see you, you're, I assume you're a Black Lives Matter supporter. I feel unseen and unheard. I feel more than that, that I feel like this is anti what I stand for, what I believe in. It's opposed to law and order. I see people on the streets, on TV. Now tell me, how I, why should I be connected to someone who is a, either supports that movement or is a part of that movement and you're a Democrat? So how do you, what do you say to me? Well, you know, we don't have enough time, but I'll tell you where I start. Start First of all, we are, we are awash in false choices. It is, the, it is the steady diet of modern politics to feed us these false choices. I said earlier, uh, I don't think you have to hate Republicans to be a good Democrat. In the same way, I don't think you have to hate business to be a social justice warrior or to hate police to believe Black Lives Matter. That's not what people are talking about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about seeing, valuing, and making policy based on a, uh, an understanding of the, of the fundamental dignity of every person. And safety, issues of, uh, of, of law and order, come where there is uh, a respect for law and not the kind of lawlessness that we saw in that uh, videotape. And sadly, that videotape is not as isolated an incident as we'd like to think. Start there. But more to the point, you know, the the economic, you know, fragility and social isolation and despair, you know, as measured by things like suicide and uh, and addiction rates uh, that folks have been feeling for generations in Black communities is now being felt by everybody everywhere. That sense that, you know, any minute, you know, we, we, our unemployment rate is low, was low. Why? Because we counted both or all three of the low wage jobs people had to survive. You know, inflation is not low if you play, pay a tuition bill or uh, a health care premium um, or rent or a mortgage uh, rate. These are issues everybody is dealing with and grappling with. And some of those solutions have to come from government. So you got to be interested in someone who wants to do, not just have the job. And in recent experience, um, doing the job means uh, more than just being a bully and, you know, showing your fanny. Uh, there's another word for it my grandmother would use um, <laughs> on TV. Being president is not uh, a reality TV uh, opportunity. It's governing and that means we got to respect some of those unwritten rules in democracy, right? That that democracy depends on, like decorum and restraint and duty, uh, and so and respect. 
So I, I think what Democrats have to be about is trying to make um, uh, judgments and make an appeal that is about all of us turning to rather than on each other. That's the kind of politics I believe. That's the reason I'm, uh, uh, I'm a Democrat. No, we don't get it right all the time. But no, polit- no, no party and no individual has a corner on all the right, I- all the best ideas. You got to be willing to listen and bring a little humility uh, to it. And I think when we do that, we win and we deserve to win. Um, so, Senator Flake, if I am a, um, a black voter, Trump is turned out. But still, I'm, I have reservations about the Republican Party. Tell me how what your pitch is for me. <laughs> Well, not everybody in the Republican Party is uh, like the president. Uh, I can't make a case uh, for you to vote for the president. Uh, I I can't make that case to myself. Uh, But there are other Republicans uh, who who understand this issue better than others. There are are Republicans who were involved in criminal justice reform effort. Uh, There have been Republicans involved in the Black Lives Matter protest. Uh, there, There are people who... Uh, are getting it, even if they uh, always haven't. Uh, I would put myself in that category. Uh, I haven't always got it, uh, but uh, but we're trying. And I would uh, say that there are other policies that I think, uh, you know, as a conservative, that uh, you know, if, if we have the right arguments, uh, the right debates, and we actually debate policy rather than personalities, we'll win more often than not. Uh, that's what the that's what I would say, but it would be a hard sell to get somebody to vote for the president. I wouldn't even try. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've had a, a number of guests on already who have highlighted how um, past U.S. policy and to some extent current U.S. policy has exacerbated and created a number of racial disparities. So everything from disparities in housing, familial wealth, um, criminal justice, and, and most recently and, and tragically health, we see COVID um, having a, a huge impact in communities of color, in particular Black and Latinx communities. The death rate is, is um, incredibly high. What would you um, say to a newly elected governor or senator um, who believes Black Lives Matter as a basic principle to do? How should they translate a belief that Black Lives Matter as a principle into policy? Where would you start? Well, look, I, I think um, there, are, there are lots of great policy ideas on each of the issues you, uh, you talked about, um, uh, particularly around, uh, around health and criminal justice um, reform. I don't think I need to reinvent the wheel. I haven't really heard so many great ideas around housing, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. I think we've made our uneasy peace in this country with this uh, with non-discrimination laws. We've never really made our peace with real integration, mm-hmm. with people actually living and working uh, alongside each other in personal ways. And I think housing is a big part uh, of that, and I don't have that solution yet. Um, I do think that we have to focus not just on job creation, but on wealth creation. I, I am a pro-growth Democrat, I believe we should be investing in growing our economy. And I think the best investments that the public can make are in public education, pre-K through public higher ed, in innovation, in those industries that depend on a knowledge-based economy and on infrastructure, broadly defined. And I would include healthcare in infrastructure, meaning all the things government can do that create a foundation for personal ambition and for private investment. 
And I think making sure that as we invest those way, in those ways, time, ideas, and money, we are intentional uh, about the impact uh, on Black people, uh, the positive impact on Black people, up to and including creating opportunities to generate generational wealth. When you say intentional, can I um, go a little bit deeper there? Are you suggesting that we should be race conscious? Are you suggesting something as far as reparations? When you say intentional, can you say a little bit more about what that means? I think we should be race conscious. I think um, trying to be, you know, coincidental about the uh, the impact, uh, the beneficial impact on Black people is one of the reasons why it's taken us so long to have sustained impact. And don't get me wrong, I'm not one of these people who thinks nothing has happened that's good since, you know, emancipation. I mean, there, there's been amazing uh, progress in this country, much of it during my lifetime. Um, but it is also true that we have a lot more uh, ground to, uh, to cover. And in some respects, particularly around sentencing, uh, criminal sentencing, we have regressed. And so I think, um, yes, we should be intentional. We should be about restoring the right to vote to, to folks who have paid their debt to society. We should be about investing um, uh, in creating um, uh, capital access, not working capital, but um, uh, equity uh, so that uh, and the coaching and uh, and counseling that goes with it so that folks can start their own businesses and create uh, jobs and opportunity and wealth. Yes, I think we should be um, uh, purposeful. We don't have to limit it to uh, um, those kinds of opportunities to uh, to black citizens, but we should be focused um, as we do on how we close gaps that we ourselves have created over time. Senator Flake? Well, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I think uh, there are times that you have to be purposeful. Uh, not always, but, uh, but yes, there are times where you identify an issue and you, you go for it. As far as on the Republican side or conservative side, there are some things that uh, Republicans have championed that I, I certainly think have helped in Arizona, for example, uh, with regard to school choice and uh, allowing people, I, I think that obviously we need to improve the public school system overall. But to, if we wait until that's done, uh, then there's a, a generation of kids who would have been denied opportunities. So I think that there are elements. I'm, I'm not in favor of doing it nationally. And when the president talks about it, to, it's really uh, you know not as helpful. Uh, but uh, but locally, where education reform efforts really happen and are meaningful, um, there are things that we can do in terms of expanding opportunity. Uh, that uh, this is not in the purposeful category, but it certainly will, will benefit a lot of people who need that benefit. I'm, I'm curious where you think we are with the health of the democracy. So I would say that these kind of conversations are, are really rare. We've already talked about the partisanship. Um, but just broadly, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the overall health of the democracy right now. And I'll hear from you first, Senator Flake. Well, I, I'm concerned. I've expressed that concern in a number of ways. Um, I mean, when we have a, as a leader of our party and the most powerful man in the world, um, who expresses a fondness for dictators and snubs our allies and, uh, basically tries to undermine confidence in elections. Um, you don't, you know, go harder against democracy than that. And uh, failure to recognize uh, institutions and norms of democratic society 
you know, freedom of the press and uh, separation of powers, independence of the judiciary. Those norms have been challenged uh, severely, gratefully, uh, as I see it. You know, the press has held up, not always responsibly, but has held its own. Uh, the judiciary, I, I think, will be there. I don't share the concerns of some that that Republican appointed, if you will, uh, federal judges will will favor the president. Uh, I just don't think uh, that they will if he hasn't won a genuine election. Uh, where I've been most concerned is the Congress, uh, the Article One branch, and uh, my own party has been completely supine, you know, in the face of uh, severe challenges to separation of powers. And uh, that, that's been my biggest concern, and that's a big uh, concern for democracy. And Governor Patrick, where were you right now in terms of the health of democracy? Well, I share the senator's uh, concerns. I think uh, probably conversations of this tone and depth are ones he and I are having in private, and sadly, they aren't happening enough in the public space. Is that fair, Senator? You, you, you're probably having those conversations across party. Yeah, I think so, yes. And there are just a number of my colleagues who share my view, yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're in a tough spot, if you will, uh, yeah. right now. So, yes. Is it, Sorry is about it funny, interrupting. It's a funny, um, this is an observation I have about um, these jobs. They're sort of a blend of substance and performance art. And I think as a relative amateur, I was slow to get the performance art part of it, but I, I got it and I, I get, began to understand you have to have them in kind of equipoise. Now it feels like the performance art is everything and folks will do that and, and, the, and the substance be damned. I was in Georgia, I mentioned um, last week, and there was a, a commentary among the um, candidates uh, vying for um, one of the Senate seats. And uh, the incumbent senator, the appointee, and uh, one of the challengers, who is a Republican member of the House, were taking shots at one another about whether they had ever voted alongside a Democrat on a piece of legislation. So that the, 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 the bad thing to do was to vote with a Democrat on a piece of Nobody was talking about what that legislation might have been about what good it might have done, nothing. The appeal was just, are you aligned or not from a party point of view? And so that worries me. I have been worried about the fragility of the democracy for all of the reasons that um, Senator Flake uh, has mentioned and others. I've worried about having a leader who's, who goes to work every day looking at how to divide us rather than figure out how to come together and solve, uh, uh, solve problems. This president was only interested in serving the people who voted for him. And as I say, if that's if that's vindicated in this election, then I think we are in pretty serious trouble. I, I agree with that. And you, um, and you both seem to be on the same page there. I'm a little worried we're already in serious trouble for some point for some reasons you already pointed out, Governor Patrick, that one, it seems to be more performance art than substance. Yeah. Um, the the vitriol that is out there is such that if I am someone who deeply cares about substance, do I really want to subject myself to that? Do I want to compete against someone who is a, a performance artist when when I that is not necessarily my strength that I might be willing to engage a bit, but I don't I don't want to be um, forced to do that. How how is it that you would get people people that are interested in actually serving? Um, as opposed to being served by the position, 
um, in this context? Like, how do we change the system so that you don't get just a flood of performance artists as politicians? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we'll ever get rid of the performance art. It's it's a that is uh, the American way, or at least a part of it. But I think that there's a. Um, I mean, look, we could do, and and there have been a number of proposals, a number of them in House One, actually, which is uh, which passed out of the House and has been sitting on uh, Senator uh, McConnell's, Leader McConnell's desk for some while, uh, that reform um, the access to the ballot, that reform uh, the the ease with which you can get and stay uh, registered. I wish we could f- uh, eliminate the influence of money in politics. I'll bet those in Washington who are having to dial for dollars as long and as often as they do um, wish that uh, as well, so that you didn't have to just beg for money or be rich in order to uh, uh, to serve. Um, and I'd like for the access to um, to the vote and voter engagement um, to be uh, lifted so that there were actual consequences uh, for the folks who went and only performed and didn't uh, uh, produce. So that, um, you know, we have the the level of um, intentional or consequential uh, suppression of the vote has, I think, left an awful lot of people wondering whether um, it matters. And then you add to that the kind of rhetoric we've had um, from the president um, over the last little while that calls into question an election we haven't even had yet and casts uh, uh, doubt on it. And small wonder that folks are feeling like, yeah, I'm not sure uh, uh, that it counts. But I think, you know, we, we're going to have to make it super easy and very transparent uh, for people to uh, vote. And I think we can do that um, securely. And then we're going to have to I believe do things like you know um, redistrict in a uh, uh, in a neutral uh, way so that there are more districts where you actually have to balance interests among um, competing views in order to win um, and then to serve. It doesn't mean you have to set. I'm not talking about watering down strong conviction. That's not it. Uh, and I'm not talking about playing one game to one constituency and something else to someone else. I'm just saying um, having to run under conditions that require you to learn how um, to bring others along and bring others in and that make it incumbent on you to have to listen as much as you uh, speak in order to serve well. And a lot of the people on this call are business leaders. What would you tell them to do? Like, So how can they help in um, both addressing some of the deep inequities in our system, our system and society, and in helping repair. Because it sounds like we, you all, both think there's been some damage done to the democracy. Where would you point them toward? What would, what should they do? The business community uh, needs to get involved uh, in in helping to vet candidates uh, that uh, offer themselves up, and to uh, get behind not as a corporation but as individuals. Uh, good candidates uh, who will elevate the debate. Uh, but I, I see, you know, I can't speak for the Democratic Party, but with the Republican Party in, in Arizona, I see the business community just kind of withdrawing and saying, well, we don't want any part of it. And and uh, we have not benefited from that withdrawal. I, I really feel strongly, um, I, I agree with that very much, Senator. I've, I've spent most of my professional life uh, in the private sector, much of that in business. And 
it was by no means, in my experience, and these are large, small, public and private uh, uh, companies, in my experience, um, just a haven for, uh, for Republicans. There was a wide range of political view. Uh, and what most people seem to want from government is clarity about the rules mm. and reliability that they weren't going to change and, uh, and, and a tax rate that was competitive, not a giveaway, but competitive. And um, I think the other thing that the times demand, given the scale and scope of our, uh, of our challenges here and around the world, is a lot more collaboration between the public and the private sector, the not-for-profit uh, sector than we normally see. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel really strongly about that because having done business around the, uh, around the world, the, the line is brighter here than it is in many, many other parts uh, of the world. And the, the give and take, the collaboration that can come from folks working toward a common uh, uh, goal, um, trying to solve in common a, uh, a problem I have found in my own public and private life um, yields a much stronger um, and lasting outcome. And healthcare reform in Massachusetts is just one example. So now what would we do? What would you have people do or what should they be working on if um, Joe Biden is elected president? And I hope that there are at least enough Republicans whether we control the Senate or not, uh, who will reach across the aisle and work with him uh, when it's good for the country. And, and I do think uh, there are a number of, of uh, senators on my side of the aisle that will do that. Um, and I, I think that uh, we need to get back in the rhythm of uh, working together and be able to campaign talking about legislation you sponsored with a Democrat, <laughs> that you move through the process. Uh, because I can tell you, that's in nobody's campaign materials right now. Uh, but if we Republicans want to be relevant to the future and broaden the base, uh, I think that's what we're going to have to do. And you, Governor Patrick, if Joe Biden is elected, what should the average person be focused on? We have to deliver. There's a lot of energy on the ground um, that is about getting rid of uh, a President Trump, but the same phenomenon of people feeling uh, unseen and unheard and unserved, will you know, it's still there, and that has to be paid attention to. We have to deliver, so that means um, we got to make good on expanding healthcare to everybody and making it affordable and making it work. We've got to uh, do good on criminal sentencing uh, reform and. Uh, and reimagining policing. We have to make good on a promise to expand the economy out to everybody, not just up to the well-connected and the investors and so on, and investing behind that. And we have to do that in ways that bring along people who will feel threatened by those changes. And I'm thinking in particular, as we move to to a uh, carbon-free future, you have to govern for everybody on purpose. Um, and make a point of it and talk about it. And in, alongside all that and reforming the democracy, which I frankly think has to be job one, um, I really, really hope we, uh, we significantly expand opportunities for national service so that we can learn to know each other or come to know each other uh, again and maybe make it a little less easy than it has been to divide us. Great. I, I really appreciate um, all of your comments and 
thank you for taking the time to come and speak with us. It's been great. And um, I hope that your visions for the uh, country come to pass. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Governor. After the conversation, I circled back with some students and asked them the same questions I asked Senator Flake and Governor Patrick. What should the role of business leaders be in democracy? I think businesses need to be responsible for their actions, just like individuals. And I think that there's been a lot of foregoing of accountability, in particular when it comes to like social and environmental impacts. And I see the I see businesses as playing a like large, um, like outsized role in the collective responsibility for the harm that they've caused within many layers of society, and that they're should be part of the repair and change. So I think it starts from within, from our hiring practices to the values that we are getting our team on board with. But then once we hopefully achieve success and have a larger reach, using our voice to influence others in the space to act accordingly. I think maybe the more important and more difficult work to take on and to take seriously as a business leader is the leadership role you have in your community and that you have as an individual, right? The fact that you are a business leader gives you a platform, it gives you credibility, and it gives you resources that you can use. I see my role as a creator. And for me, that whatever that thing that I create is, is going to have impact that is aligned with my views, (laughs) some of which are political. And I think for a long time in this country, we've had a habit of separating like your personal life from your professional life. And in some ways, to me, that's kind of why we are in the situation we're in today, because we can go to work and punch in and do stuff and then come back at the end of the day and say, well, none of it matters. But like, it does matter. You've been listening to Leadership for Society, Race and Power, the podcast series. This show is produced by Stanford Graduate School of Business And our theme music is composed by Belief. For more episodes in this series, make sure to subscribe to the Leadership for Society podcast.